All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this the 17th day of March 2020. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. Also, want to encourage you to continue sending along your thoughts whatever they may be, to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. I also want to thank our sponsors. Otherwise, we would not be having this show. Our sponsors that make this show available today are Eli Gold, uh, Great Bear Resources, Hannon Metals, Irving Resources, Lion One Metals, Novo Resources, and Sitka Gold Corp. Before we get into today's show, I want to inform you that I did an interview with Dr. Quentin Henning yesterday concerning the urgency of self-quarantining yourself and uh, with plenty of food and water uh, to last at least the next several weeks. Dr. Henning also discussed how the coronavirus is impacting the way he is handling and advising companies that he has some responsibility for, such as Novo Resources, Irving Resources, and Lion One Metals. Uh, all three of which, of course, are sponsors of this show and are among my favorite companies in my newsletter and in my personal account, for that matter. Uh, you can listen to this interview with Dr. Henning by going to J. Taylor Media, J-A-Y Taylor Media, uh, or you can go to my YouTube channel as well. I've titled today's show, Why Are Things Falling Apart? Charles Hugh Smith will be with me in the second half of today's show. Michael Oliver will be with me momentarily. And Michael Hudson appears for the first time to talk about a massive new sedimentary-hosted copper-silver discovery in Peru. Mainstream pundits on CNBC and Fox business channels have been talking about what a great economy Americans have enjoyed with stocks hitting new highs month after month. But quite abruptly, a black swan named coronavirus swam into the economy, triggering enormous equity market declines and, without a doubt, untold carnage in the real economy. The response is already a promise of trillions of newly printed dollars to try to alleviate the pain of this suffering, whether or not that pain is the suffering of common folks or, most importantly, uh, the big boys on Wall Street remains to be seen. Well, most people will say that, as they did after 2008, 2000, uh, year 2000, or the two, 1987 crashes, that no one could see it coming. But that's not exactly true. There have always been those who understand Austrian economics, that realize that the seeds of our ultimate monetary destruction were sown by John Maynard Keynes, who introduced the economic religion of Keynesianism. In fairness to Keynes, his theories held that government should pay back debt in good times and only go into deficits during business downturns. Unfortunately, unlike 
truly free market economics built on solid foundations of an honest monetary system like gold or silver, uh, being a faith-based economic system like Keynesianism is, uh, there was no ways, uh, no way of enforcing good behavior. So the natural laws of economics, when based on sound money, they do uh, enforce uh, responsible behavior. Uh, in the best interest of people, they obey the laws of natural economics, but not so with Keynesian economics. Uh, the politicians have never been able to pay back during good times. They've always been borrowing more and more, and the consequence has been mountains of debt that is really now starting uh, to bog down, more than bog down, to destroy uh, the, uh, the the global economy, in essence. And uh, we're starting to see uh, we're starting to see that in spades once again. They managed to. Uh, to write the aircraft in 2008, but at great expense, and now I'm afraid, um, you know, the uh, uh, as they say, the uh, we're about to pay for the sins of our past, it would seem. So while it may not be true that you can't predict uh, which black swan will trigger what which problem and when, uh, there are people who have studied and understand uh, deeper underlying social problems and uh, economic problems. Charles Hugh Smith. Uh, who wrote the book, Why Things Are Falling Apart, will be with me in the second half of today's show to talk about that and uh, and more directly and more immediately the concerns of the moment, the coronavirus. And so we'll ask Charles to dive deeper into the underlying self-inflicted pathology of the Western world um, and to try to get a better understanding of, of why things are falling apart. More importantly, what we can do right now uh, to uh, to help ourselves and to protect our families. Michael Hudson, as I mentioned, will be with me uh, to talk uh, right after our first commercial break, actually, about uh, what is really looking like a massive, high-grade copper-silver sedimentary-hosted deposit in Peru. And uh, that company is Hannon Metals that he heads up. So he'll be here to tell us about that in the second segment of today's show. But right now, I'm really happy to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Interesting times. Oh, my goodness. Interesting times. And you don't know how much I wish we had had you last week, uh, but we've got you now. So um, in a note to me earlier today, you talked about a broad slingshot move for the commodity sector in general. And and uh, I'm bringing this up now because I, my next guest is Michael, uh, is going to be, um, uh, I'm going to have my, my guest uh, from, um, from Hannon. Um, Michael Hudson. Uh, he's going to be with me to talk about this copper and silver deposit. Well, silver is really, it's, geez, it's just getting slammed. Copper is no big winner either this, this year so far. And yet you're suggesting that we may be on to or about to see a major move in the broad commodity sector. Now, I know you've been saying this and you've been particularly uh, bullish on the, uh, on the soft commodities to a great extent. But uh, talk to us about your latest views on the commodity sector in general at a time when, you know, when people are selling whatever they're able to sell, it seems, in order to pay back the margin clerk. Mm-hmm. Um, in the weekend report, we had, uh, I put up some simple price charts. Uh, normally, we show momentum in price, but the price mm-hmm. charts are so evident, that, and they contradict basic notions that investors have right now. And that is that when the stock market goes down, the commodity is going down, too. Well, on a short-term basis, yes, they have been. Copper especially, crude oil especially, and silver recently. The gold miners broke last week and basically exploded since then. Uh, but when you stand back and go back to 2008, go back 11, 12 years, 
and look at a monthly price chart of the Bloomberg Commodity Index, crude oil, copper, silver, XAU index of the gold miners, and then put in contrast the S&P price chart going back to 2008 and 9. They're totally opposite. S&P has been driving from the lower left hand of the page to the upper right hand for 11 years. And the commodity complex in waves uh, has been in a downward angle since 2008, with a secondary peak in 2011, but in a major downward zigzag angle. However, in 2016, when gold bottomed, when silver made a low, crude oil made a low at 26 bucks, which we're challenging right now, uh, Bloomberg made a low, Bloomberg Commodity Index, all, everything made a low in 2016. And basically since 2016, most commodities have done what? Go sideways. Uh-huh. In a broad range, but go sideways. Gold's the exception to that. Uh, you can almost like a box to the right. And uh, now silver nipped out its low by a dollar this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, crude oil may take out its $26 low that it made in early 2016, but these are likely to be fake-out new lows, unsustainable. Commodities in general are fully smashed. They're theoretical zero, in my view. They were there in 2016. They're still there. They're not going to go substantially lower. This is a base. And I think the central banks are creating the, uh, have lit the fuse to ignite this space. The triggering factors will be investors. If, in, to the extent investors are a bit tired or suspicious of stocks, and they now should be, uh, they need to put their money somewhere. Well, when you look at the commodity charts, yes, they're under pressure right now, but they're at the bottom end of these theoretical zero price bases. I mean, oil's not going to zero. You know, $26, compare that to its high in uh, 2008, 147 or its high even several months ago, you know, at 77 uh, This is a very low prices for commodities. So the argument that, oh, demand is weakening, et cetera, et cetera, yeah, that's already reflected in the price action. Mm-hmm. So what we see at Momentum Structural Analysis is major bases with pending triggers overhead for most of these markets. Some of them will be stronger than others, but the percent gain that you can see out of some of these markets, given the price levels they're at now and the fact that they're oversold and the fact that they're exhausted on the downside. You could have vacuum-type upturns, much like we just saw, which we expected in the GDX ETF. It dropped down to $16 and change on Friday. I was watching the ticks, the five-minute bar chart. It was Mm -hmm. a full crash mode trying to copy the stock market. Was Mm -hmm. it trading now? Reached 25 today. Mm-hmm. From 16 no. to 25 in a matter of a few days. No. Well, it shouldn't have been down there at 16. That no. was a fake out. It didn't no. make a new low, by the way. It's low in 2016 was $12.40. So GDX came back, probed near that low, took out a few intervening lows to run some stops. But as soon as they did, the vacuum effect took, took hold. We're now closer to the top of the range than the bottom of the range in a matter of 48 hours. That's <laughs> the kind of action we're tending to expect. Other market we're watching very closely in that regard is silver. Silver tapped out its 2016 low by a dollar or so. Uh, it was $13 and change back then. We got to just under 12 in this recent break. It's now trading around 13. Uh, we're watching for trigger numbers on that market, and we'll update our subscribers accordingly. Gold, meanwhile, is what? Uh, we have a big update in the dollar because there's a panic run for dollars around the world as the financial markets are in, you know, quite unstable and fractured. The Fed is uh, noticing that. They're providing trillions of liquidity uh, around the world. They're buying T-bonds and so forth to, say she, to satisfy that demand. Right. Uh, but the, gold, the dollar is up sharply today. Gold's $100 off yesterday's low. 
Mm-hmm. So again, comparisons of what the dollar is doing versus gold, I think, are essentially irrelevant. Um, the dollar has, has not been a beneficiary to gold over the last couple of years, and yet gold has gone from, what, 1100 to 1700 Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, you know, I, I think people have to stand back and look at this commodity complex and realize that, that gold is leading, as it did in the late 70s, by the way, and that most of these commodities are bombed out. And if they're bombed out and investor preference shifts, once you get an upturn in the commodities, mm-hmm. once they can smell that upturn, the flow of new liquidity that the central banks are creating, where is mm-hmm. it going to go? Mm-hmm. Into a stock market that's now fractured mm-hmm. or into bottomed out commodities. I think the latter. Well, I would suggest so because I think you're going to see declining earnings now as we go forward. The global economy is a mess. It's coming unglued, at least for the foreseeable future. I think that's a fair statement. I think we're in a recession already. Likely we'll see uh, as we progress through the year. They usually backdate these things. Michael, with one minute left, though, um, the dollar the dollar, as you just mentioned, has been stronger. I, I see this as a liquidity a crunch issue that, uh, you know, when, when margins come under pressure, um, people have to sell whatever they're able to sell. One of the reasons I think gold got smashed, the stock gold stocks got smashed, is people just indiscriminately sold whatever they were able, not necessarily what they wanted to sell. But right. how long can this dollar remain strong, uh, quote-unquote strong? It's, it, well, it, it's strong compared to two weeks ago when it was trading at 94 in the dollar index. It's yeah. now at 99.90 90 or 100. Remember, it was 103.50 back in 2017. Uh-huh. So if you look at a chart going back about to 2016 and 17 and draw a line sideways, uh-huh. uh, yeah, we're, we're off the recent lows. We're still uh, uh, below the all, not the all-time highs, the highs of that move. Mm-hmm. If you look back 20 or 30 years on the dollar, these levels are hardly high at all. Yeah, um, exactly. In fact, it... It, it, it doesn't even look like a bull trend. So I think the jerking around of the dollar, which is likely to flip back down again once the Fed prints enough to satisfy that need, uh, might help gold at that point. But gold hasn't needed to help up to this, yeah. up to this point. In fact, if you were waiting on dollar demise over the last two you, years, you would have missed the entire move in gold. You would have missed the move, right, exactly. Yeah. All right, Michael. So I, we'll, my suggestion is ignore it. <laughs> very good advice, very good advice. Thank you so much, Michael, for being with us. Always good to have you. Uh, for your insights, and uh, we'll look to do it again in a couple of weeks. All right. Well, folks, we do have to go to break now. Don't go away, though, because Michael Hudson will be with us from Hannon Metals. Uh, very exciting story there. A new discovery, major high-grade, looks like a very massive discovery of, uh, of copper and silver. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Michael Hudson. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm here with Michael Hudson, uh, who is the chairman and CEO of Hand and Metals. This is the first time we've spoken to Michael, so I'm going to uh, just give you a little bit of his background. For the past 28 years, Michael has developed mineral exploration properties. He's worked on those over the last 28 years uh, worldwide. He has an impressive academic background in his geological studies from the University of Melbourne, uh, and he received the Tolhurst Noel Prize for Mining Investment analysis in Victoria, Australia. And uh, he started his career in 1990 with Pasminko. Uh, that's the largest uh, global integrated zinc producer during the 1990s and uh, spent 10 years working with zinc-led projects worldwide uh, from exploration to pre-feasibility projects in Pakistan, Australia, and Peru. Michael has raised uh, over $100 million in uh, primarily European-focused exploration projects in Finland, Spain, Portugal, Sweden, and Ireland. Uh, since 2004, he has headed Mawson Resources uh, as founding chairman, CEO, and director. He is also founder uh, and chairman of Leading Edge Materials. It's a critical metals uh, company in Sweden and a director of Hydro 66 Holdings Corp. But today we want to talk to Michael about Hannon Metals, which has an exciting new discovery in Peru. I first heard about Hannon when uh, interviewing Bob Moriarty on this show towards the end of 2019. Bob picked Hannon as one of his top two picks for 2020. Uh, on this uh, basis, Bob's re- on the basis of Bob's recommendation, I checked out his story as uh, the story of Hannon and liked it uh, very much and agreed uh, that it is a compelling story, putting it into my uh, as coverage for my newsletter, J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stock. So uh, I'm really delighted to have uh, Michael with me today. But before I say hello to Michael, I should note that this interview was pre- pre-recorded on Monday afternoon, March 16th in New York, or Tuesday morning in Melbourne, Australia, where Michael is. Uh, at this time, uh, the shares of Hannon were trading at around Canadian 15 cents, uh, or around 12 cents in U.S. money. Uh, and so with uh, 178 million shares outstanding, it gives the company a minuscule market cap of eh, maybe around uh, $20 million in U.S. money or something like that. So, of course, that's a minuscule market cap only if uh, the company has something of value much more than uh, than its market cap. And I believe that is the case, which is why I'm really pleased to have Michael with me today. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Uh, it's a pleasure, Jay. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, thanks for traveling safely, and and uh, I guess you're self quarantining yourself, yourself uh, so quarantined down in down in Melbourne. Now you just went on a whirlwind trip. My goodness, how many continents and uh, just incredible! You were in South America, you were in Canada, you were where? Where all were you in the last couple of weeks? <laughs> it was. Uh it was the Amazon to Arctic uh, field trip, uh, punctuated by PDAC and a, and a U.S. marketing tour through through five or six uh, of your major cities there last week. So I've I've been around the world, man. <laughs> Boy, you sure have, literally. And I hope that you're well and uh, and keep safe down there in these very dangerous uh, dangerous times. Well, notwithstanding current market conditions, I know you are excited about your sediment hosted 
copper-silver project down in uh, Peru, known as the San Martin Project. Uh, can you help our listeners understand why the excitement from your perspective as a geologist, even if the markets could care less right now? Well, exploration is the the engine room for the mining business, Jay, and, and, and the truth is that um, we work on big time frames. Uh, you know, we're going to mine more than copper in the next 20 years than we have on the history of the earth. So the world is desperately looking for for new metals and copper specifically because of the electrification of the world. So so what we've come across in Peru is, is basically a new basin, a new sediment hosted uh, copper silver basin, which which is pretty rare. You know, they, we, we've searched the world pretty thoroughly over the last hundred years and and, and new deposits are hard to find, let alone new basin scale um, areas. Which you know we've got a, we've got an area staked over 120 kilometres. Excuse my metric, but uh, mm. it's a huge area. New mm. discovery. Oh, it's huge! Absolutely huge. Can you give us a sense then of, of the grades that you found? And I believe you've had over several several areas of this massive uh, discovery. You've you've seen uh, outcroppings, and you've gotten some pretty high grades. Could you share those with our listeners? Yeah, sure. The the context of the mineralization is pretty well understood because we've got uh, the data of the petroleum industry who've explored there for the last 20 or 30 years. So it's really important that these grades have great context at the same or similar stratigraphic horizons over over that you know, hundred plus kilometers. So, so we've been getting areas of three to five meters thickness at sort of three to five percent copper, wow. um, plus an ounce or two of silver. Really, in in the in the few outcrops that we found, um, we found you know half a dozen or so outcrops, and and then hundreds of boulders in creeks. But the grades are ex- exceedingly high, and they need to be for these uh, these deposits to work. But uh, but yeah, very very good start. And I believe there's, you know, as I noticed on the map on your on your website, there are about five different targets, I believe, on this San Martin. Uh, how far apart are they located, and um, and which ones might you be working on or focusing on first, and why? Yeah, it's a really good question because we've got such a large area, and we want to make sure we're we're focusing in on the best areas as early as we can. So. So we've got a large stream sediment survey sampling program to try and nail down the better parts of the system over that 120 kilometer trend. We've, we've walked a lot of these areas already. Uh, we did a little bit of work this year and, and, and then we've been funded to put uh, a bigger, much bigger team in this year. And, and up until a few days ago, they were working there very actively. And, and, uh, We've also found areas where there's more outcrops. Um, the very southern area, um, which we call Sakanche, is, is uh, the area of interest at the moment. We've inferred this rich copper uh, horizon over a couple of kilometres through through um, the outcrops and the like. So that's that's where we're putting in the most effort at the moment, and that that correlates too to where we're gaining social license and accessing these areas with the approval of the local landholders. So it's, it's, it's hand in hand, but there's no shortage of uh, target areas. And, and uh, you know, we've got uh, a, a sort of like a pyramid of work programs where we're covering large areas rapidly. And as we progress to the pyra- top of that pyramid, we're doing a, a lot more detailed work like soils and mapping and, and eventually drilling in, in those areas where we've got more information. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you, you mentioned up until a few days ago your 
your people were on the on the site working away. Uh, are you being held back a bit now by the uh, the coronavirus? Yeah, this is going to affect the whole industry from from supplies right down through to getting people on the ground. Uh, Peru only yesterday announced a, a state of emergency, and and everyone in the country must self isolate. They can only go out and um, and get, buy food and medical supplies, or, or or the banks are staying open. So that's of course going to affect us in the in the short to medium term, and no, no doubt. Uh, no doubt we'll see how that progresses, but um, airports have shut down. The regional airport that has oh. 10 or 11 flights from Lima daily over a 50-minute flight for us to get in. So, so um, yeah, it's a time for reflection and um, and pulling together some data, but we've been working there for the last few months pretty actively. So so there will be news flow and data coming through um, over the next month or so as, as all that work is compiled and, and assays are received. Okay. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you have these outcrops. Um, is, is that true of all five of those targets that you had so far? That you've had outcrops on all five of them? Um, it depends on what scale we're talking about, the five yeah. areas. But really, most of the outcrops have come on that southern 20 kilometers of the trend, uh, Jay, where we put in much more work. So that's the Kanche area. Yeah. Um, we're talking 20 kilometers, <laughs> which yeah. is only fifth of our area. Um, so uh, up north, uh, you know, zipping 80 kilometres north, we found mainly just boulders in creeks. So we haven't had the time to basically walk up the hills um, mm-hmm. to find those outcrops where those boulders are coming from. But we certainly know it's extensive. We know it's the same type of uh, mineralisation. Mm-hmm. So it's mainly in the south where we've done the work, where we've got those outcrops. Okay, that's Sakanchi area, I think is what you said. And do, do you have a sense of, I mean, are these flat-lying beds, uh, sed- sedimentary beds? Uh, and if if that's the case, are they how deep do you think they might be where, where it doesn't outcrop? Do you have any sense of how deep these things might be under the surface? Yeah, let's, um, we, we, we have an idea because we've got this petroleum data that I just briefly yes. mentioned. Uh-huh. We've got the seismic data. So we, we actually have torn this basin apart, or well, the, the petroleum industry did in terms of torn it apart in terms of geological understanding. So these things are generally flatlying, which is important because it makes them more mineable. Um, now, that's a, a big forward-looking statement because sure. we haven't, haven't yet drilled this. This is a brand-new discovery. Sure. But, but um, flat-lying bodies give you the chance to, on, on sort of skinnier bodies, the two to five-metre thick Horizons, um, if they're flat lying, are, are, are much more mineable than if they're vertical and costs go through the roof and it makes it harder. So that's a that's a pleasing concept. And and um, the, the other style of mineralization that we found there's there's a couple of styles of mineralization, I suppose, in this basin. So I've been just talking about the thinner, higher grade copper, mm-hmm. but we know there's gossons. Uh, lead zinc gossons that are peripheral to copper bearing um, areas that are 50 to 80 metres thick and we're finding those over tens of kilometres also and and, um, all grades of lead zinc that that form peripherally in in the analogues and we should have a talk about the analogues around the world too, what we've got um, and we know we know that uh, they're going to be mineralized, and we've got some evidence they're copper mineralized as well as we move along strike. So, so it's just not a, the thin high grade. We've got basically thin high grade over this 120 kilometers. Is more than analogous to some of the the big huge deposits in the world, but um, but also these gossons that you know nobody's nobody's looked at this. This is frontier country in 
in in an area that's pretty accessible and um so that's that's the exciting thing um we're only limited to what we know at the moment and we're going to find out a lot more as we progress this year and beyond well for sure okay so let's talk about the analog can you compare what you're seeing here at these at this early stage with some of the great uh, sedimentary hosted deposits around the world yeah, that's uh, that's the exciting thing is that the geology is so analogous to to the Kufaschiefer, which is in Poland and and Germany, which has been mined literally for thousands of years, and and that's one of the largest copper deposits on Earth, copper and silver deposits, and and of course the other analog is the African copper belt, uh, where where a huge amount of the world's co- copper and cobalt comes from. Now, we've got a little bit of cobalt, but it's mainly the silver-rich end member that we're looking at. These these deposits are the second most prolific form of copper on Earth after porphyries. And, and um, you know, porphyries have been the big game changer since the 70s in the, in the copper business, but uh, their grades are lowering and the amount of rock that has to be taken out to, to get uh, these porphyries out of the ground is, is becoming bigger and bigger. So, so the big prize really in the copper space are, are these sediment-hosted copper deposits and, and if you can find a new basin, you're really in the, in the, uh, in the Nirvana world of, of uh, future okay. copper exploration. Right. Now you just have to go uh, start to drill them and, and prove that that's what you really have. And of course, that's going to take some time. But what can we look forward to then? I guess it's really hard to plan your drill program because of this uh, coronavirus. But what do you think might be accomplished this year, assuming that this thing doesn't go on too, too many more months? Yeah, sure. I mean, we can only work within the boundaries of how this plays out, but uh, our plans still stay intact, and we'll we'll uh, enact them again as 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 the situation allows. But but basically, we we've got. Uh, you know, half a dozen geologists on the ground, four, four to six geologists, and and we're we're basically doing all that sampling, which is really quite cheap. But the most first principle thing to do uh, in in any new discovery is to understand the geology and go and sample what's at surface. Equally, as I touched on before, getting uh, or obtaining that social license from the people on the ground is is critical. So so we've we've got. Uh, We've got um, a social licensing team and then employing people locally in each different provincial area so so we can message what we're doing, what we what we said we'd do, what we've done and, and, and building up that credibility with the locals. And, and then we, we hope to be going towards drill permitting in some of these areas uh, in the next two to three months, but we'll see where that goes. And that's that's uh, that will should have us drilling by the end of the year in specific areas. Um, it's a sort of a six-month process, we figure, but Peru's been very difficult. We've, we know Peru well. You, you touched on some of my experience, and I've been there since the 90s, and and I've been working with the team that's in place in Peru since those days. So we've got very experienced people and, and know how to operate in the country very well. But uh, that's our best guess at the moment, Jay, sure. um, all, all else being sure. a bit uncertain. Sure, absolutely. And and there will be some more data coming through, though, before you, you're drilling, as you said. And uh, so how well funded are you, Michael? And uh, that question, just with another minute left, any uh, metallurgical problems on the horizon? 
Uh, that's a good question too. So uh, funding-wise, we put about 2.2 million Canadian in the bank only a month or two ago, which was um, extremely well-timed, no doubt, and, and that will allow us a, a $1.7 million program this year, which which is, you know, relatively substantial, and, and we'll find out 10 times as much about this discovery over the next six months if we can get back on the ground. Um, and we've been working there for the last few months, and we've been finding a hell of a lot. Metallurgically, uh, copper is in the form of chalcosite, which is probably the best high-grade pure, pure copper mineral that you'd want. And, and the, the concentrates that chalcosite can um, do form are in demand. So that uh, there's no red flags at the moment without a, a hell of a lot of metallurgical work, of course. But but uh, chalcosite is what everybody wants. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, we really wish you the best. It is an exciting story, no doubt. Um and um, we'll, we'll be keeping in touch with you, Michael, to find out how things are going, both for my newsletter as well as for the listeners of this show. I want to thank you very much for being with us today, and uh, we'll look to update this story as things unfold. Thank you so much for being with us. Many thanks, Jay. All right, folks. Well, we do have to go to break now. Don't go away, though, because uh, coming back, Charles Hughes Smith will be with us to talk about uh, why things seem to be so crazy these days. What's going on in the markets and uh, and also with this virus, what's what's happening? And uh, Charles Hugh Smith will have some insights uh, that I think will be very helpful to you. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQX, is a gold exploration company focused on their 23-kilometer, wholly-owned Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Ontario. Having recently made multiple high-grade gold discoveries, GBR is fully funded to complete a very active 200,000-meter drill program through to the year 2021. Stay up to date on what has been considered one of the best performing exploration stocks in the last two years by visiting greatbearresources.ca. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Charles Hugh Smith. Charles is the author and proprietor of the uh, popular blog of twominds.com, which he started in 2005, and he's a contributing editor to peakprosperity.com. He is the author of numerous books, including Why Everything is Falling Apart, an unconventional guide to investing in troubled times. He wrote that back in 2013. Uh, he's also written several other books. One that we did talk to him about before was Money and Work Unchained, uh, in which he addresses the idea of universal basic income. Uh, and that may be a topic that some politicians are looking at uh, right now, in fact, given the, uh, uh, the coronavirus and the market carnage that seems to be taking place. 
Anyway, given his most recent equity, given the most e- recent equity comments, uh, equity market meltdown, I should say, and the carnage that's coming about with this coronavirus, um, I, I want to talk to Charles uh, maybe first and foremost right now about a recent article, March 16th article, titled COVID-19, Helicopter Money, Go Home, uh, Go Big Now or Go Home. Welcome, Charles. Thanks for joining me again. Jay, it's always my pleasure. It's always good to talk to you, and you are keeping yourself quite a ways away from uh, your other home. And uh, today, I think I'm talking to you in Hawaii, or uh, also have a home around the Bay Area, where we were just a week ago or so for our son's wedding. But the Bay Area is getting hit pretty hard with uh, with the coronavirus. And how are things in Hawaii? Uh, well, so far, uh, Jay, there's um, a fewer uh, cases uh, here, but um, th- we don't know whether that's just um, a result of, of fewer tests being um, given, <laughs> which is the issue in, in many places in the U.S. We don't know if the, uh, if the number of official cases reflects um, a lack of testing as opposed to an actual, uh, you know, limited spread of the virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I guess we don't know this yet, but to what extent does weather, does warm weather pay, play in this with this virus? I mean, is it going to, is it going to be less hospitable uh, in warm environments? And and I would imagine that that you're living in uh, that where you are in Hawaii, the temperatures are generally higher than in the Bay Area, or not? Uh, yeah, yeah, it tends to be in the low 80s here as opposed mm-hmm. to the 60s and 70s. But um, I, I'm no expert, but I mm-hmm. uh, have read that people are looking at Australia as a test case for that theory. Oh, sure. Because it is summer there and it's yeah. it's um, very hot <laughs> in a mm-hmm. lot of Australia. And we know that the, the epidemic has spread there. And um, yeah. so, therefore, there's some concern that it's that heat is not going to suppress it as much as we hoped. Mm-hmm. Time will tell, I guess. Uh, yes, we, we can hope, but we have to be realistic as well. So I want to really, COVID-19, helicopter money, go big now or go home. Uh, you wrote in that article, governments around the world will be forced to distribute helicopter money to keep people fed and housed and their economies from imploding. Um, do you see that unwinding now? I mean, I'm seeing some talk about you know, $1,000 checks or something like that from the Trump administration. Uh, that's like $330 billion, uh, roughly, I think, if you give $1,000 to every American. But in the meantime, I know we've been, the Fed's been pumping in trillions of dollars in the repo market, uh, and they just committed another $1.5 trillion, I think, last week to try to stabilize the markets. They've cut the rates down to, to zero, uh, nothing seems to be working, but do you see any signs at all that um, that they're going to do anything on behalf of the the masses of people, or the, is it going to be same old, same old, where Wall Street gets bailed out, the ruling elite are taken care of, but the common folks are left trailing behind? Well, Jay, that's a very good description of what um, my fear is, and um, the the hopeful part of of that. Uh, statement is, I think we're in a different environment than we were in 2008, which was a um, 
which was a, a financial crisis as opposed to a healthcare crisis, an economic crisis, a crisis in the real world economy. And so um, one thing I'm, I'm hesitant about a lot of the commentary I read out there is people try to compare the current situation to 1929, you know, the Great Depression yeah. or the 2000.com um, um, meltdown or the 2008 subprime uh, financial, global financial crisis. Uh, all of those were fundamentally financial uh crises caused by too much leverage, too much debt, too much speculation, right? Now, we, we have that exact same setup, which is why we're seeing these huge dislocations in, in markets around the world is there was too much leverage, too much uh, debt, and too much speculation, right? And so, that's, that's the perfect setup for a financial dislocation or crisis. But but beyond that, this is not just a financial crisis where the Fed can, you know, uh, provide short-term lending and, and kind of smooth everything over. This is a healthcare crisis, and this is a crisis in the real-world economy, which is why I, I wanted to talk about helicopter money. Is mm-hmm. many of us already know uh, waiters, waitresses, uh, wait staff, um, people in uh, in the tourist industry who were already laid off, right? Mm-hmm. Even bef- even before the lockdown, their hours were being slashed, and I, I have a deep concern for small businesses having been you know self-employed or in small business myself for decades it's like uh the carnage in the small business sector is 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 going to be huge and um just giving people a thousand dollars isn't going to bail out all the small businesses many of whom face really high rents you know that's another Mm -hmm. issue i wanted to mention here is the cost structure of american life has gone Mm -hmm. up so much Mm -hmm. that utilities um fees, taxes, rent. It's like incredibly expensive to to have a bricks and mortar business. And so I don't think $1,000 per household or per adult is going to really fix the problem for small business. That's one of my concerns. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how much that does for, as you you point out, just the general living expense. Uh, You know, what does $1,000 do in the Bay Area, for example, to pay for your rent? Not much, or in New York City for that matter. Never mind food. How concerned are you about the uh, this uh, supply disruptions of food? I mean, Quentin Henning was making the point that in New York City here we may have some issues of even seeing our groceries stocked. Certainly, there you know the long-lasting food items have disappeared from the shelves in a couple of days here. Uh, but in a, if if you had a total lockdown, you might not see trucks coming over the George Washington Bridge to deliver food and so forth. Do you see that as a as a potential problem? Uh, well, I th- it's it's something that we're all monitoring. Um, I, I think America is blessed um, in, in in terms of food with a pretty diverse supply chain. Mm-hmm. Um, other nations are much more dependent on food from elsewhere. You know, we we uh, we grow uh, most of our own food, and and most of the stuff that's imported is specialty items. Mm-hmm. And we have a pretty diverse uh, supply chain, you know, of hundreds of, you know, independent trucking companies and um, rail railways and so mm-hmm. on. So I think we're going to be okay. There may be shortages um, in, in some items, but mm-hmm. um, I think I think it's definitely an issue in other countries which are dependent on global supply chains for their food and, and also disruptions that are deeper than the ones we're experiencing. Um, for instance, I saw, this is anecdotal, this was mm-hmm. just a, a report from someone in Thailand who had friends in China. So this is not mm-hmm. a, an official media 
uh, report I read, but um, this this person was reporting that in um, that in in uh, rural cities in China there was a, a huge stench from all the farm animals who had died mm. for lack for lack of feed and mm. care. Yeah. In other words, when you know when you abandon your farms or you're mm-hmm. you're too sick to take care of your animals, then they. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you can have so other countries might be experiencing a, a decline in food production that's going to show up in their economies in a few uh, in a few months. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wrote in that article that the pandemic crisis isn't going to end in April or May, though the urge to indulge in such magical thinking is powerful. It might still be expanding in August and September. Um, that rings true. Com- based on on some a discussion I had with Dr. Quentin Henning, who I interviewed, that interview can be heard at Jay Taylor Media. But Dr. Henning pointed out that, um, you know, time is of the essence. Uh, and unless people start quarantining themselves, unless you have mass quarantinings soon, sooner rather than later, because of the exponential growth of this virus, uh, you know, one day adds something like forty percent to the number of infections. Um, is this is this what you're seeing that we're not acting soon enough, and that is why this thing could drag on well into the summer and and even beyond, or or what? Yeah, I I am uh, deeply concerned, and as as uh, your interview uh, pointed out, this thing takes off really quickly, and and we can look at Italy as the uh, best documented example. The first severe case of of the coronavirus occurred in Italy um, on February 20th, uh-huh. and within three weeks, there were thousands of cases, and they locked the country down. Only three weeks. That's all it took. Mm-hmm. And so that is what's different about this from the the normal flu or whatever, right? I mean, this thing um, advances extremely quickly. I, I think part of my concern is about about it stretching out is I think it's now endemic in much of the world, meaning that um, there's no way to eradicate it. And so there's a pool of, of people, of asymptomatic people, you know, people that um, had mild mm-hmm. symptoms or don't even have any symptoms at all that are going to still be out there. And so when they relief, uh, release these lockdowns and, and uh, uh, reduce the limitations on movement and, and enterprise, you know, commerce, then this pool of people will enter, re-enter the mainstream and then there'll be a, a new wave of, of infections. And this, um, we also have to be concerned, uh, and again, I'm not an expert, I'm simply mm-hmm. referring to other experts that mm-hmm. say that, you know, viruses mutate very quickly. And so we're, we're all kind of assuming that, that there's not going to be a, a mutation that takes a turn for the worse. Like, for instance, increases uh, the danger to, to young people or um, that, that it doesn't become even more uh, contagious. You know, those are unknowns. But I think the, um, the, in, the economic damage is already so severe. Oh. Oh my goodness! That, uh, yeah, that we're that we're looking at effects into uh, you know August, September, October. Even if even if the coronavirus itself was magically disappeared in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I think that the economic, the global economy was slowing down a bit anyway. And we've had ten years of growth here in the U.S., tepid as it may have been, but the equity markets, of course, growing. I think relatively higher even than the real economy. Uh, and so the you know the redistribution of wealth to the top one half of one percent or one percent it's been very profound, 
And, uh, you know, of course, a lot of our politics uh, has uh, evolved around that, around that realization that there's just uh, extreme redistribution of wealth. Um, when you say it's imperative to go big now, so you're talking mostly, I guess, from an economic point of view. Uh, do you see revolutions or you see up- uprisings among the people? I mean, when people become destitute and they have no, nothing to lose, isn't that when you start to have real problems in terms of civil disorder? Exactly, Jay. You you, uh, you said it um, very concisely, and and um, one of my favorite examples of that is um, in the French Revolution. Um, the 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 mobs arose and tore down the Bastille, which is you know considered by by many people sort of the start of the uprising. On the day that the price of bread skyrocketed in Paris uh-huh. to where uh-huh. to the point where people could not afford to eat. Then, mm-hmm. as you said, that's what triggers social disorder. I, I hope and pray that doesn't uh, occur in um, around the world, but it's certainly the trigger when you feel that you cannot afford to eat uh, or pay your pay your utilities or your rent, and then um, you you are pushed to extremes. And um, unfortunately, here in the U.S., I, I'm going to just step back for a minute and try to provide some context. Over the last 20 years since mm-hmm. the dot com. Uh, bubble burst. We've seen a, I think, we've seen an erosion in, in investment in, in productivity. And, and, mm-hmm. and you and I have discussed this in, in previous mm-hmm. shows that, you know, the, the real source of wealth is, is, is um, greater productivity that mm-hmm. is distributed throughout the economy. And of course, this is what the dot-com bubble was based on was, my gosh, look at all these tools that are going to increase right. our productivity. Yeah. And so we've underinvested in that kind of thing. I know that you can look at there's certainly uh, many examples of, of of greater productivity tools being made available. But as a general rule, what's happened is we've invested in stock buybacks and mm-hmm. and this kind of unproductive stuff, and that that created asset bubbles that that gave us the illusion of of greater wealth, but it wasn't really creating an engine of greater wealth. And then, as you said, because it wasn't really widely distributed productivity gains, it was simply asset bubbles and speculative ventures, well, then that all flows to the people that have the capital and that can borrow it at very low cost, right? So that's why we've we've got this huge wealth disparities. And now those bubbles are bursting and all assets are going to be repriced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would seem so. And, uh, you know, and, and the small, the small, um, you know, the common folks are, are really being left behind once again in a major way. Uh, I guess the, the question is, do you, do you see real prospects then if, if trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars are spent or created out of nothing? Uh, it would seem as though we're going to be facing uh, an inflationary problem of some kind, which unless 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 there's lots of money distributed to the common folks, trillions and trillions of dollars, uh, you know, we're pumping money into the into the into Wall Street. I mean, this one and a half trillion dollars just last week was committed by the Fed. As I said, uh, huge amounts of money uh, that have been put in, pumped in uh, to the markets to try to keep things going the last several months since September of last year. Uh, do you do you uh, do you believe that we have a real uh, potential hyperinflation problem, a la the French Revolution? Is that a possibility here? Do you see that at all? 
Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure we're going to reach hyperinflation, but I do, I do think it's um, highly likely that we're going to see inflation kick up for the same reason you said. You, you pump in trillions into um, the Wall Street to try to prop it, prop it up. Um, that's one thing. But if we do do helicopter money, uh, we're not creating the goods and services, but we're creating the money. And so, therefore, the larger sum of money is going to be chasing what goods and services are still out there. And that's mm-hmm. where you get in inflation. And, of course, you and I have also discussed this in the past, that real-world inflation is much higher than the official rate, right? We, like we've all, For all sure. of us who have, who buy health insurance on our own, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've been hit with, you know, 10, 15% increases year after year after year. So when we we're told in the official inflation rate is 2%, we, we, we can only laugh rather bitterly. Um, so we've already had a lot of, of inflation in, in the real world. And so uh, another dose of it could really push a lot of people um, into insolvency because they really just they can barely afford uh, their their uh, living standards right now. Yeah, that's it. no question about it. Um, so you have this massive amount of money that's being created, and, it, and I think though that if you if if it goes into the hands of individuals, as you say, that will create enormous demand for goods and services without putting. Uh, but again, this gets back to your idea of a lack of. Um, uh, of increase in productivity, where cheap money is available for companies to buy their to borrow and buy their stock back. Of course, right now, um, with things going the way they are around the world, I can't imagine. You know, American Air, all the big airlines, for example, all that you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, probably billions of dollars at least a day, flowing into the banking system is no longer going in there. The illiquidity in the banking system, I can't imagine, Charles that the ruling elite and the bankers won't be fighting like heck to try to stay alive and they could care less about the common folks. But again, this gets to this idea when people are desperate. And we, we've already seen the yellow jackets in, in, uh, in France, for example, right? And things haven't, I mean, this was before the outbreak. So um, there's, there's, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to, to be very concerned about, about this. Well, I guess we can wring our hands but we need hope, and so give us some of that if you can, Charles. What should we be doing, uh, and what do we need to do, to uh, you know, to, to literally to stay alive here going forward? Right. Well, I have a couple of uh, comments on that, Jay. One is, of course, if if you have cash, or if you can liquidate assets at, at, at you know and get out with a little profit and have cash for the repricing of assets, there's going to be some bargains in things like maybe agricultural, you know, uh, agricultural commodities, maybe mm-hmm. oil. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of things may go on sale here, as as um, the speculators have to sell everything. You know, mm-hmm. um, so that's one opportunity. The other thing is, it I think it could end up being good for the economy in terms of it finally increasing productivity. Like for instance, a lot of colleges are closing, and mm-hmm. the students have to go online. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, guess guess what? That works for probably eighty percent of all college students. So why the heck do we have to charge people thirty thousand dollars a year to stay on a campus, and, and when when actually you can cover eighty percent of your education online? Yeah. Interesting. So we could, so we should be able to see some uh, some gains there. And what about working from home? Everybody that works in front of a screen, if they can work at home, that's um, a lot less commuter hours mm-hmm. wasted, a lot yep. of 
fuel that isn't wasted. So mm-hmm. I see some gains from 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 the adjustments we're making. You know, if we can institute them. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly your idea about uh, commodity prices uh, uh, that coincides very well with the. Uh, views of uh, Michael Oliver, who was with us during the first uh, segment of today's show. His view is that we are poised for major gains in the commodities, and I suppose if there's inflation, that would be maybe part of the reason for it, uh, commodities going up. Well, we're just with a couple of minutes left here. My engineer says two minutes, in fact. Uh, just talk to us a little bit about uh, why things are falling apart um, in general, uh, you know, I mean, the Austrians, uh, people of my life, of my ilk, a lot of times like to just look at money, the debasement of currency. And you mentioned it about how we're spending our money badly uh, and not building capital and productivity. But just uh, quickly, maybe just summarize your article uh, or your book, Why Things Are Falling Apart. Okay. Uh, thanks, Jay, for that question. Um, basically, my <clears throat> my. Uh, what I was trying to explain is why our system has become vulnerable to shocks and why it's so fragile. And it's fragile, uh, first off, financially, as you say, in terms of our money. And it's financially, uh, it's economically fragile because we're not in, in investing and costs have risen and wages are stagnant. But it's also socially uh fragile for the reasons that we already discussed, that as as you undermine the real world economy that 95% of us live in, uh, you create these social uh, instabilities. And then politically, um, as we all know, you know, the, the, the wealthy and the lobbyists control, uh, you know, Washington. And so um, we're also created um, a, a fragility in our, our in our political system that it, it's no longer functioning you know it's it's um it's not really taking care of or, or addressing the problems we actually have it's just putting on window dressing and 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 bailing out you know wall street and and that's mm-hmm. not really solving the problem so all of these fragilities mm-hmm. are you know they they're now coming they're now becoming visible with with the coronavirus right all right we'll have to leave it there thank you so much charles for being with us again uh, it's really great to talk with you. I hope we can have you back soon again. Why things are falling apart, folks, if you want a more a more uh, conclusive answer, uh, you might want to consider buying the book published in 2013. I guess it's still available, Charles, right? Online? Yes, it is. All right, yes. folks, we'll, we'll have to leave it go at that. Uh, that's all the time we have for this week. Next week, Alistair McLeod will be with me, John Rubino as well. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Lion One Metals, one of 2019's top performing gold stocks, is geared for aggressive growth in 2020. With drilling underway and its fully permitted high-grade Tuvatu gold project in Fiji, one of the last high-grade gold deposits of its kind anywhere in the world, not owned by a major gold mining company, Lion One trades in the USA on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF and in Canada under LIO on the TSXV. To learn more about Lion One's world-class high-grade gold potential in Fiji, go to liononemetals.com.